Welcome to Code Whack, your podcast on America's broken healthcare system and how Medicare for all could help. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. Why has Taiwan fared so much better than the U.S. in the COVID pandemic? What are the roots of racism in American healthcare and how are they still evident today? Tom Hartman, America's number one progressive talk radio show host, spoke to us about his new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. Tom's a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award and a New York Times bestselling author of more than 30 books. Welcome to Code Whack, Tom. Well, thank you, Brenda. It's great to be here. Great to meet you. Your new book just came out, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. How did you become so passionate about healthcare and the need for reform in America? I have been a human being on planet Earth all my life. It's like, you know, I've, I've been sick, I've been healthy, I've had people around me get sick, and, you know, it's... Uh, it, our food and our health care and our housing and our, you know, clothes. I mean, there's some things that are just fundamental to being able to live on this planet and in this country. And every other developed country in the world has figured out how to deliver health care to its citizens in a way that is relatively inexpensive, that nobody gets obscenely rich off of, and that serves the public. And the single exception to that in the developed world is the United States. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've been sick. Did you have a personal experience that drove that home for you? I've had a few problems in my life, but, you know, nothing that created the kind of financial crisis. I've been very fortunate. I've run my own businesses for the better part of the last 50 years and therefore have been, you know, able to make enough money or, you know, to be able to afford getting sick or have my business provide me with good health insurance. And now I'm over 65, so I'm on Medicare, and which is spectacular real Medicare. A Medicare advantage would be very, very dangerous, but I'm on real Medicare and, you know, with a Medigap plan and uh, even had surgery a couple of years ago on my back and it's, you know, not one penny. I mean, it's just, it, it works really well. Um, every American should have access to what I have. Yes, I agree. So this statistic is pretty unbelievable, but according to our world and data, as of early October, 2021, the U.S. had experienced about 131,000 COVID cases per 1 million people, while Taiwan had experienced about 680. How did Taiwan conquer COVID so successfully with no economic shutdown, while the U.S. is still struggling with it? Taiwan has what is arguably, in my opinion anyway, the world's best single-payer healthcare system. It's clean, it's efficient, it's relatively new. It got put into place in the 1990s, perhaps the 80s. And everybody is enrolled the moment, you know, that you're born, you've, you get your number, or your card or whatever, and boom, you're in it. You get a card that you can use to access your health records anywhere. You can check into a hospital, you can make an appointment or go visit the doctor or whatever. It completely covers everything. And because everybody is in one giant database, um, which is not unique, by the way, countries much larger than Taiwan, you know, have similar things. But Taiwan just executed it so elegantly because everybody is in this one giant database. We got our first case of COVID on January 20th of last year, and they got theirs on January 21st, the day after we got our first or diagnosed our first case. And they immediately used, you know, kind of built into, now this was, this was about a month after China had published the genome and, they, and tests were already available to determine whether somebody had COVID or not. 
And so they immediately use that national healthcare system database to uh, create the world's, in my opinion, fastest, most sophisticated, most efficient testing and contact tracing system. And using that, they were able to isolate the people who were infected with COVID, keep them from spreading it, uh, you know, bend that R value all the way down to zero, uh, the reproduction rate for the virus. And, uh, you know, they spent most of last year with uh, you know, no problem. I mean, you know, everything was fine. And, and the early part of this year, they, they ran into some bumps in the road with, with the Delta variant. Uh, they are vaccinating, uh, of course, as fast as they can. And uh, they're doing just fine. Right. And Taiwan has a single payer healthcare system, right? Absolutely. The world's best. Yes, it's definitely ranked among the top in 2021. You've identified the most important factor in the nation's health outcomes, and it's not poverty. What is it? Well, it's it's the, whether you have a, a healthcare system that delivers healthcare, you know, with equity. It's it's the system, uh, frankly. I mean, there are poor guys. Costa Rica has a single payer healthcare system. Uh, Louise and I were down there uh, last year. Uh, no, it's more like four or five years ago, actually. And uh, the taxi driver who picked us up at the airport, we were uh, filming for uh, Leo DiCaprio's movie, uh, uh, Ice on Fire. And so we had to go to this place way out in the jungle. And this taxi driver picked us up at the airport and was driving us out there. And, you know, just your average taxi driver, guy we picked up at the airport. And uh, I said, you know, what do you like the most about living here? And he's, he's like, well, I don't have any medical bills. And my son went to college and the, and the government paid for it. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is friggin' Costa Rica. We can't do this in the United States, but they do it in Costa Rica. Yeah, it's the delivery system. Right. What about wealth inequality? What role does that play in the nation's health outcomes? In highly unequal nations, what you find is that those at the very top of the inequality pyramid are just sucking up all the resources from the bottom and, and the, the ability of the working class, essentially, to get the things that they need in order to, to live, which in my opinion includes healthcare, is diminished you know, for the sake of uh, private gain for the very, very wealthy. It's, it, it's almost like a psychopathy. The analogy I would draw is to hoarding syndrome. You know, there was this TV show, Hoarders. Um, I, I've not seen it, but I've, you know, it's basically about people who, you know, their, their living room is floor to ceiling newspapers and their kitchen is filled with all kinds of empty tin cans and whatnot. I'm of the opinion, and, and what we know is that that hoarding syndrome is an identifiable, clinically identifiable mental illness. And it's a variation on obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, I am of the opinion that Many of the really morbidly rich people in this country and around the world, the ones who, you know, one billion wasn't enough. They had to make two and then they had to make 10 and then they had to make 50. That they are, had they been born into a lower middle class family or even a middle class family without whatever skills or connections or whatever that got them to their first, you know, million dollars, they would be living in an apartment that's floor to ceiling newspapers that they have hoarding syndrome, and what they're hoarding is money. And it's extraordinarily destructive to society. It doesn't hurt us if, you know, every 10th apartment in New York City is floor-to-ceiling newspapers. If there's lots and lots of hoarders there, it doesn't hurt us as a society. But if one out of, you know, a, a few million people in the United States just start hoovering up all the money and then stashing it overseas in ways that it can't be taxed and nobody knows, you know, that's extraordinarily destructive. Yes, absolutely. In the 1960s and 70s, the federal government introduced Medicare and Medicaid to help promote racial equity and also forced hospitals to desegregate. Then in the 1980s, with Reaganomics, everything changed. What can you tell us about that? 
Well, what Reaganomics did, uh, the, 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 there's a couple of big things that Reagan did. Probably the biggest was in 83 when he told the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission to stop enforcing the, the antitrust laws. And the consequence of that was that prior to that, uh, we had uh, hundreds of smaller health insurance companies and they started consolidating like crazy and acquired massive political power by virtue of their size. That happened. The other thing that happened was that prior to that, most states, I lived and grew up in Michigan and I ran a business in Michigan right up until uh, uh, 78 when we left the state, moved to New Hampshire. And every hospital in Michigan was required by law, by state law, to be a nonprofit. Uh, We had three of them in Lansing, uh, Sparrow, St. Lawrence, and Ingham Medical. Uh, St. Lawrence was run by the Catholic Church. Ingham Medical was run by the county. And Sparrow was funded with an endowment from Mr. Sparrow, who was one of the founders of General Motors, you know, a very, very wealthy guy back in the 20s. And, um, you know, they're all now, I believe all of them, maybe one of them is not, but they're all for-profit hospitals now. So, you know, Reaganomics was, you know, part of the Reagan philosophy was doing away with these requirements for nonprofits. Also, the health insurance companies were required to be nonprofits. Um, We had a little factory. We had an herbal tea company uh, in Michigan, and I had 18 people working for me. And I remember I paid $35 per month per person for health insurance to Blue Cross Blue Shield. And it was comprehensive. And there was no co-pays. There was no deductibles. There was no pre-existing conditions. There was no BS. It was a nonprofit uh, health insurance company. And therefore, their goal was not to make money for investors. Their goal was to provide health care to people. And uh, Reaganism blew that up, too. Wow. That's different in every way from what we have today. Oh, yeah. It's essentially what they have in Switzerland. Switzerland, out of all the developed countries in the world, the only one that doesn't have a national health care system is Switzerland. And what they've done is they have required everybody in the country to have health insurance, or you get heavily fined. They've required the health insurance companies to be nonprofits, and there's dozens of them, and they compete. And they've required the hospitals to be nonprofits. And so stripping all the profit motive out of it, it it's gotten pretty efficient. But at that said, uh, Switzerland is still the second most expensive country in the world for healthcare behind the United States. That's per capita? Per capita, yeah. Oh, interesting. Do you know what the satisfaction rate is there with that system in Switzerland? It's very high. I, I don't have any specific statistics, but basically we're the only country in the developed world where the majority of the people, when you do opinion polling, would rather have a different healthcare system than what they have. And, but we're also the only country in the world where the Supreme Court has said that our constitutional First Amendment right to free speech includes the right of billionaires and big corporations to pour unlimited amounts of money down the throats of politicians. And, you know, with the Citizens United decision, and it really started in 76 with the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, where the Supreme Court, for the first time in the history of the world, certainly the history of the United States, said, oh, you know, uh, billionaires owning politicians, big corporations giving politicians money in exchange for votes. That's not corruption. That's not bribery. That's free speech. And thus, here we are. Yes, indeed. But unlike then, racial awareness is more in the foreground today. Do you see the Black Lives Matter movement and greater racial awareness leading to better health policies? Well, racism is a, you know, it's the legacy of America. It's still very much the omnipresent reality of America. But it's also the reason why we don't have a national health care system. What do you mean? A guy from Germany, Frederick Ludwig Hoffman, he came to the United States at the age of 17 with five bucks in his pocket. Right. That was in 1884. And he was a, a math savant. 
He was brilliant with numbers. And he got a gig with the Prudential Life Insurance Company, which at the time was the largest life insurance company in the world, uh, running numbers on risk factors so that they could figure out how, to, how much to charge people for their life insurance. And he was the guy, Frederick Kaufman was the guy who learned, who, who proved that there was an association between smoking and lung cancer, between uh, asbestos and mesothelioma, uh, between working in cotton mills and uh, lung fibrosis. And in fact, he founded the, lung, the American Lung Found, uh, Association. He co-founded that. And he also discovered that there was a relationship between eating a diet high in processed foods and high levels of cancer. And his book, Diet and Cancer, uh, which he wrote in the 1920s, uh, is still in print in 2021. You can still buy it online or in bookstores. Uh, even though he's been dead since 1946. So he was really well thought of and he was a really smart guy. And so he decided in 1896 to apply his, his mathematical genius to the problem of race, again, f for Prudential. You know, they were starting to write policies for black people, which they hadn't done before that. There was this 30 years after the end of slavery. And so he ran the numbers and he found that black people were much more likely to get sick than white people. And when they got sick, they were much more likely to die of it than white people and that they didn't live as long as white people. So Prudential started charging black people more for life insurance, which, by the way, they did right up until, 19, until the 1960s, based on Hoffman's research. Hoffman took this research and published a book in 1896 titled Race, Traits, and Tendencies of the American Negro. And in this book, he lays out the math, and then he says, therefore, here's the conclusions. Number one, blacks are an inferior race and you know, have what he termed inferior vitality. They did fine under slavery because white people took care of them, but they can't take care of themselves. And number two, if you wanna solve the race problem in America, just don't let black people have health care for a couple of generations and they will all die out. Oh my God, for real? Honest to God, this was, this was his pitch. And this book became a major bestseller in America. He traveled around the country. He testified before Congress. He testified before state legislatures. This theory of his, became the basis of part of Woodrow Wilson's eugenics program in the 19-teens that Hitler imitated that led to the final solution. The sterilization of Native Americans, the Tuskegee experiments, all this stuff came out of Hoffman's work. He was really very, very famous in the United States from the 1890s until the 1930s. Everybody knew who Frederick Hoffman was. Wow. So this is why in 1912, when Teddy Roosevelt was running for re-election with his square deal, which included a single-payer health care system, the white Southern racists said, oh, no, you can't do that. Black people will get that. We're not supposed to give them health care. This is why in 1936, when Franklin Roosevelt proposed a single-payer health care system, the white racists in the South said, oh, no, you're not going to do that, not down here. This is why in 1947, when Harry Truman proposed a single-payer health care system, oh, no, not here, no black people getting health care here. This is why in 1961, when John Kennedy proposed it, nope, not going to happen. And in 1965, when Robert Ball and Lyndon Johnson were putting together Medicare, the white Southern racist senators came to them and said, if you're going to send older, yeah, we get it, it's people over 65, but they're still black. If you're going to send those people to our all-white hospitals, we're going to put, you've got to put some bar in this Medicare law that they, that they generally won't be able to jump over so we don't end up with poor black people in our hospital. And that's why there's a 20% copay. That's why Medicare only covers 80% of, of hospital expenses. That 20% was the, the bar that black people, you know, because you'd have to prepay when you came to the hospital, that black people would not be able to jump over. Unbelievable. And it's still happening. It's like, to this day, 
Racism is animating this conversation. This is why today, right now, as we speak in 2021, there are 12 states in the United States that have not expanded Medicaid, 12 states that have not extended that to their working poor. All 12 of those states are former slave states. Welcome to the 21st century. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, when, when Obama expanded Medicare or Medicaid, rather, you know, as part of Obamacare, Rick Scott was the, the governor of Florida. Nope, not going to do it. You know, Rick Perry down in, uh, in uh, Texas. Nope, not going to happen. I mean, et cetera, you know, right, right across the, the former slave state belt. Thank you, Tom Hartman. Tune in next week when we'll continue our conversation with Tom about America's broken health care system and his new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare: Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. Find more Code Whack episodes on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. You can also subscribe to Code Whack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Gazar.